this is our 22nd anniversary of the founding of this global and living Church of God work. We started this work, my wife and I, and Mr. and Mrs. Don Davis, and we had several others that helped us, including my younger sons, David and Jonathan, were right there in our home with 19 people. It was December the 26th, so it would have been 20, 22 years and one day ago that this work started, this present work. And of course, I've been in the work, the ministry of the Worldwide Church of God now, and now our Living Church of God for about 62 years. But our present work has had to carry on the work that God began through Mr. Armstrong. And for any of you who are new, I hope all of you try to think about that. I'm not going to try to concentrate on that today. But it is good to realize we didn't just spring up from nowhere. We are a continuation of the church of God that came right down through Jesus Christ and Peter and James and John and Polycarp and Polycrates and Paul of Samosoto, Peter Waldo, and different ones in Great Britain and over here, culminating in A.F. Duggar and A.N. Duggar and Herbert W. Armstrong, and now we're carrying on that historical work of the Church of God. And hundreds of you know if you've studied it. How many of you read the book on church history that we passed out? Some of you read it. I won't ask those two bad people that haven't read it, but we gave it to everybody. So I hope you'll read it, even if you have to skip the first couple of paragraphs. I'm not asking you to do that. If you're a real slow reader, some of that is the background of the history of Israel. But then it gets into the history of this work. And it's the best overall history like that we've ever had. And I hope that you will read that and come to recognize your heritage. And you young people need to realize that too. We didn't just spring up out of the, we didn't fall off the turnip truck, as we say. We've been around for a while. This church has been around since 31 A.D. when Jesus Christ began the church of God in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost at 31 A.D., and, of course, it goes way back about 3,500 years before that with the congregation of Israel under Moses and Aaron. And then we have the New Testament church starting under Christ and the apostles. We're carrying on that work. There have been hundreds of people carry on that work. Thousands of people carry on that work. And actually hundreds have been martyrs down through the time. And it's good for us to recognize that those people had to go through trials and tests, horrible tests that we may never have to go through, and yet we've got to be willing to go through and understand that the great tribulation happens pretty soon and we are not really close to God and able to be taken to a place of safety. We can't begin to imagine the things that are going to happen. So I hope all of us have the close connection with God that Mr. Jason Fritz talked about. And we have that deep connection with our Creator so we can make it through those days. And I certainly hope all of you will do that. So I'm grateful to God for all these things that God has guided our work now for 22 years and we've had the love and the unity even now. Brethren, I have told you a number of times in sermons, most of you have heard them on the tapes at one time or the other, that there's going to come a time, or maybe several times, but at least a time for every one of us, undoubtedly, when we will be all alone. We won't have the church there. We won't have our husband or wife or friends there will be getting ready to be tortured or beaten up or run out of town or something, and we won't have a lot of help from other people. And we have to know God in that moment of terrible trial and know that he is there and that he's alive. And I've seen how that's worked out in the last 65 years since I was baptized. 
I thought many times terrible things were going to happen in the work or they were going to happen to me or they were going to happen to Mr. Armstrong. I've had many people call up and threaten his life. I used to be the main one in Pasadena in the early days. Dr. Herman Hay was certainly smarter than me in academic ways. And Norman Smith was in the radio studio, more the technical guy. And the two Raymonds, we called them, Raymond Cole and Raymond Minaire, were sent to the field and other men. But Herman Hay and I were there, and I was asked to kind of guide things in certain ways like that. And people would curse him and threaten to kill him as they cursed and threatened to kill Raymond Minaire and later Burke Minaire and I on the baptizing tours. We weren't trying to win friends and influence people in the normal way. We were trying to teach the truth of Almighty God. We didn't try to do it in a wrong attitude, but we knew we had to get that message out with all our hearts. And we were going to baptize people that had asked for baptism. By the way, for you younger people, the baptizing tours were not to go out and talk people into baptism. We had to turn down approximately 50% of those that were there. I remember back in Texas... At, on the tour I was with, and I, I forget who was there with me. I think it was Berkman there. But anyway, this great big guy brought his wife, and we baptized her, and he wanted to be baptized. Well, I wouldn't baptize him, and he got kind of mad. So well, I've sent her brother, her Herbert, I've sent him tens of thousands of dollars. And I turned out he had. He was a big Texas oil man, but he was smoking a cigarette when he talked to us. He was cussing. I couldn't baptize him. And so he called Mr. Armstrong and read the riot act about me. And Mr. Armstrong called me right on the tour, found out where I was. And I explained to him what happened. He said, well, Rod, you did the right thing. It was kind of embarrassing, perhaps. This guy was very self-willed, obviously. And you should not have baptized him. So I wasn't in trouble. The old man, he wasn't old. He was probably about much younger than me now. He was probably about 50 or 55. But he thought he owned the universe because he had a big Cadillac and a lot of money. We're not trying to talk people into anything. We want to help them get into the kingdom of God one way or the other with all our hearts. And it's not a popularity contest, and I hope all of you and you young people realize that. We are the church of the living God, and we're going to preach the truth and teach the truth and write the truth and get out God's message with all our hearts until the day we die or until the day Christ comes, or at least the tribulation begins, and we can't do it during that period of time. So I hope we can really understand this. I hope all of you will, will really think about it, pray about the messages you've already heard here, and that you, none of you will fall away. Hang on to the truth. We do happen to have what is called the truth. We didn't used to talk about when I came into the church because the church didn't exist except for Portland, Pasadena, and Eugene, Oregon, and, and uh, that was it. No other churches east of the Rockies. It was when I came into the truth. Who has the truth that really understands this Bible and gets it out? I think most of you do. We do more than any particular group, and we're trying to do it even better, of course. So we have to understand that the time will come when we will walk alone, and we've got to understand that and realize that we've got to have faith as I heard was talked about in the Bible study this morning, and we've got to have a lot of courage during the days that are just ahead. In the Gospel of John, if you turn to John uh, chapter uh, 16, John chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 32, this was near the end of his life, 
He said, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each one to his own place, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Christ was not alone. And I knew when people were pointing guns at me or throwing rocks at me or hitting me with canes or clubs or boards, I was not alone. And God will never leave you completely alone if you really put your faith and trust in Him. You will find out that He will take care of you. He is there. He is always there. And He is your Father. And He will never leave you nor forsake you. Some of you may leave or forsake Him, but He will never forsake you. And you must deeply, profoundly understand that. I remember on a baptizing tour with Burke McNair back in 1951... We headed out at night as we normally did because we didn't have air-conditioned cars in those days. It was very, very hot going through the south. So we left about 10 o'clock or midnight. And at night, I guess maybe a little earlier, maybe in the evening because it was a, a late at night at least, we were in somewhere near Tucson, Arizona. And the sky was sparkling clear. But we were tired and we pulled over to take a pit stop, I guess. And I got out and walked up this road. I was hoping there weren't... Uh, uh, rattlesnakes on the road but it was a very bright gorgeous moonlit night and I couldn't help it we were just starting out two young men all along we were going to be driving it turned out 19,500 miles on this tour and I looked up at the beautiful sun the, the stars I mean and the moon and it was a beautiful night I said Father in heaven we're alone we need your help. Guide us, protect us. I know we're going to run into men with guns and clubs and everything else as we had before. Please take care of us. We're trying to be your servants. And, of course, he did. But I remember that prayer that I knew that I was not alone. And it was very important as I look back to realize how God always heard those prayers in all these trials. I remember a trip that I took back in 1963 with my friend David John Hill it was right after my father's death. He died July the 3rd, 1963. And I knew then that God was my only father. And John and I, he was very brave, kind of brash, even more than I was. I was brash too, but he grew up on the Olympic Peninsula, climbing high mountains all of his life as a boy. And so we, he wanted to go up under the moonlight. I happen to have a moonlight for all these occasions and we climbed the pyramids. I can't remember if it was the Great Pyramid, but one of the pyramids, which is probably not legal now, but no one said anything. We just climbed up there. And I got up, up on top of that pyramid looking out across the Egyptian desert. And I pictured my father back in the Ozark Memorial Cemetery in Joplin, Missouri. And I thought, Daddy's lying back there in his grave. And here I am halfway around the world on top of a pyramid. <laughs> And God is my only Father. And that hit me. And I definitely thought about that at that time. It gave great meaning to me to think of those things. I remember a baptizing tour with Ted Armstrong and how we heard the prayer or the song, I'll Walk with God on that baptizing tour. We saw the movie, which is the only movie I've ever seen on the many baptizing tours because Ted wanted to see it and he was singing a lot. So we did stop by one afternoon to see the student prince. And there was Mario Alonzo. Now, I love our own Mario about a hundred times more. 
and he has a good voice. But Mario Lanz, as you know, is a very top professional singer, and he sang that song. He had his hand on the his father's coffin, this great big German cathedral after the father, the prince, or the king of the loyal principality had died. And he had his hand on his father's coffin. You looked up at the soaring cathedral, and he sang, I'll walk with God. And I've never forgotten that. In my own life, I'd heard that expression, and that meant it mean even more. And I've tried to have that as a theme in my life for 65 years. I'll walk with God. And brethren, I think many of you have done that, or we would not be here today. I know Mr. Ames has done that. I know it by his fruits and all the things I've seen him do. And I know many of our top men have gone through that and have their own memories. We've all got to have that as a theme in our lives, and I hope we can really understand it because it is a very important thing, our walk with God. If you have that theme in your life, God will bless you forever, and you really hopefully can make that a theme, one of the key things you think about, not just being a Christian in general. You should be. All those things are important, but, but have that concept. Your hand is in God's hand, and his hand is taking care of your hand, and trials and tests and sickness and death, yes. My first wife died back in 19, uh, 1976. And as you know, my recent wife died just about one year ago, about, uh, about 13 months ago. And we carry on. And if we don't walk with God, we might not be able to carry on near as much. So you've got to walk with God no matter what under, what happens in your life. Back in Genesis chapter 5, if you want to turn there, please. Genesis chapter 5 and in verse 21, notice what happened at the very beginning among the great men that God began to use once human history got underway. Genesis chapter 5, and it describes here in verse 21, this great servant of God soon after Adam Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Methuselah, you know, was the longest life human being ever. He begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. I'll bet he had all kinds of trials and tests and people threatening him. God took him away supernaturally. The bad guys might have been out to kill him. There was some reason why God took him, but he walked with God 300 years. So all the days of Enoch were 300 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. may have taken him away from men that were hunting for his life, but he was blessed, and he was delivered because he walked with God. You turn over to Genesis chapter 6, and most of you know this about Noah, but it's good to focus on that again. In verse 8, the Lord was ready to destroy the, all humanity because of their violence. And Noah found grace, verse 8, in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah is a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. He walked with God through one of the most horrible times in the earth because the earl, all flesh has corrupted God's way. The earth was corrupt and the earth was filled with violence. And so he said, the earth is filled with violence and behold, I will destroy them from the earth. So God protected Noah and his whole family because this one man walked with God. He walked with God 
talked with God, made God the center of his life, no doubt, in every way. And God saw that, and God honored that. And so four or eight, I should say, eight human beings had their lives spared. And you can see they weren't all real dedicated by what happened later. But more, at least, walked with God. And such a tremendous thing that's mentioned again and again about some of the great men of God, and I won't have time to read them all, but certainly in our day of same-sex marriage, of increasing violence and murder, we know that we've got to be close to God. We've got this horrible Ebola virus beginning to sweep around the world. It may not get over here that much, but it's just a prelude, in any case, to the really big disease epidemics that are predicted by Christ. And I read an article and heard even a section on the National Public Radio just this morning describing how these people come down with Ebola and thousands of them are dying even now, or many hundreds at least in Africa even now, and some of the doctors and nurses. How they begin to have terrible diarrhea and vomiting, and pretty soon they're shaking, and some of them are into kind of a, a nervous convulsion. They don't understand. Their mind goes almost. They can't think. Their body is coming apart. And finally they die. Those things are going to happen in ahead in this nation. And we're going to have to know that God is real. There's only one absolute way to be healed in times like that. The doctors want to do good. Most of the nurses want to do good. We know that. But when these diseases become true pandemics, they're going to run out of medicine. And some of their medicine won't work. And we will have to walk with God. We will have to know and know that we know that there is a great God who is our Father and we have our hand and His hand and put our trust in Him. And I think more of you and me and all of us are going to have more profound faith in the future because He's going to bring us through various trials to make us know He is real. He's there. You don't have to wonder about it. And I'm sure if we build that faith by going through those trials faithfully, putting our faith and trust in God our life in God's hand again and again, we will develop a more profound faith than perhaps any of us here today have. So we need to understand that. And brethren, the only way we're going to get through the great tribulation that's just ahead of us, and what we're seeing now is not, will not light a candle to what's ahead when you read the Bible. We've got to know God, to talk with God, walk with God, have Christ live in us in a profound way or we won't make it. You might say, you're kind of severe, Mr. Meredith. Why would you say that we're all here in a good attitude? Well, I ought to bring out the 1969 Envoy, the student book from the college in Pasadena where I taught Bible classes longer than anyone else and knew these men intimately. You see the pictures of vice president this, vice president that, evangelist this, evangelist that in this centerfold picture. What happened to them? Virtually all of them are gone. They're nearly all gone and left the truth. And if they're dead, they left the truth before they died. I don't care who they were. I love them. I like them. I still think about those friends and good memories we had. But I'll tell you, when the chips are down, if you're not walking with God, you won't make it. You can't sit on the, on the, on the fence. You can't straddle the fence. Brethren, if, if the eternal life is worth something, if it's worth something to you to live forever in the kingdom of God, then you've got to go all out with all your heart and not do it halfway. 
So I'm not going to mention all the names of these guys because I know them and I love them and I prayed for them and I spent hundreds of hours with some of them, thousands of hours with some of them, but most of them fell away. And so we've got to go through the great tribulation with faith and courage, but we can only do that if we walk with God. In Genesis 17, if you turn there now, we're back in the book of Genesis. If you've kept your place, turn to Genesis, let's turn to chapter 17 now of the book of Genesis. And here you see the story of Abram. Abram was 99 years old and the ever-living one appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me. Walk with God, walk before me and be above reproach, be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and so on and make him a father of many nations. So God did use Abram and made his name then Abraham, meaning a father of a multitude. You see a little bit later uh, in this same passage here, uh, this same area at least, over in uh, chapter 22. Genesis 22 now. And notice this example, which most of you know. I hope you know it. It's one of the most uh, uh, powerful passages in the whole Bible. Genesis 22, verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Boy, what a test. You go onto the top of this mountain and you kill your son, your only son, your only legitimate son, the one I promised to give all these blessings through. That one, take him over there, slit his throat, Kill him like you would a, a lamb and trust me, in a sense. So Abraham didn't argue. It says he arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men, got the fire, and headed out. Why would Abraham do that? Was he some mean man? If I had a vision or a voice in the night come to me saying, Kill Jim, go kill Michael, go kill jo- jo- Jonathan or, or David or any of my sons, would I rush to get a knife? No. It may sound bad to you, but I would not do that. I would say, oh God, if this is you speaking, I want you to reveal yourself to me in a powerful way so I can be absolutely sure that it is God. Why didn't Abraham do that? Because Abraham already had had for decades a profound relationship with that God. That God had guided his life, guided him here, guided him there. Abraham had walked with God already. He wasn't wondering what was going on. He knew and he knew that he knew this divine being who was the creator and the governor of the heavens and the earth. So he didn't have doubts. He knew this was the creator speaking. And it says in the book of Hebrews, he knew. Abraham didn't wonder. He knew that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He might have killed his son and 10 seconds later God would bring him right back. He knew that. So he knew it was going to work out for good. So he saddled his donkey and he headed out and took Isaac and a knife and all that, built the altar, laid his son on the wood. And so then right an angel of the Lord, probably Christ, a messenger said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know, and you've heard me mention it in that way before, that's a powerful thing that God was saying. He wasn't wondering about Abraham after all of this. 
And Abraham immediately being willing to do what God said. And I said, well, I'm not sure of this and I'm sure of that. He immediately headed out to do what God said. He said, now I know that you fear God. You have a genuine awe of the creator and governor of the entire universe. You know God. You've served God. You've prayed to God. You've seen God's answer. You have walked with God. Now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And so then a little later, God sent an angel or he spoke out. The angels called to Abraham a second time, verse 15, and said, By myself as I've sworn, says the Eternal, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. You notice it says, says the Eternal. So this was probably Christ speaking. Christ was a messenger himself at times, speaking for God the Father. In blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants to the sand of the sea, on the seashore and stars of the heaven, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Yes, Abraham walked with God. And therefore he had total faith and total commitment because of that constant, profound relationship he had with the Creator. And wherever he went, you see the account of how Abraham would offer a sacrifice. He would build an altar. He would pray to God. He'd cry out to God. He'd honor God. And God blessed him and blessed him and blessed him. And he will bless any one of us if we will do the same thing. He really good. But we've got to really know that and be sure of that and not sit around wondering about it. Because Jesus Christ is the same, excuse me, yesterday, today, and forever. But anyway, I'll try to get a little bit of this uh, tea. So Abraham walked with God, and God then honored him. He really knew God. My cousin Lyle Cunningham, second cousin, when I was a 19-year-old boy, just before I came to Ambassador College, I was going through Boise, Idaho, on the way to Oregon, where I'd worked in the woods before one summer, my grandmother insisted that I go by to see Cousin Lyle because she'd help raise him and his brother because they were the sons of her sister. Her sister and husband had died in an automobile accident, and she raised these boys. And they all came back every year to see Grandmother Meredith because she had helped raise them for years and taken care of them. And so she'd given him the message that Roderick is coming through and she got the what wants to help me. So I showed up with two or three of my friends from Joplin and we stayed at Lyle's house and he took me down in the basement. He was very successful. He was the second man in command of the whole Bureau of Reclamation that built Hoover Dam and Grand Coulee Dam and all these big Bureau of Reclamation projects around. He was the second man in command of the Northwest District, which is about five states including Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana, maybe Utah, several states. So he had a lot of authority there. But he took me down in the basement while we were still staying there. He saw I was very religious. I was beginning to hear Mr. Herbert Armstrong and learn. I talked to him, and he drew a chart. He was a businessman, and he thought he could get me all straightened out as this big businessman who knew everything. I was just 19-year-old. He drew a chart, a circle, on the big blackboard, and he said, well, here is a balanced life. I hope, Roderick, you can live a balanced life, and here 
about a fourth or a, or a third would be your business, and over here's your family, and over here's your recreation, or over here's a small sliver, maybe one-sixth or one-tenth was your religion. He says you need to keep everything in right balance. So Cousin Lyle had God in his place, very small place. He didn't know God. Of course, it wasn't his fault. He was trying to help me, very nice man, and let us come in and stay with him on weekends when we come down out of out of the... Out of the dam up in, up in the mountains about every other week we'd come down and stay with Lyle and see the great wonders of Boise, Idaho which was sort of a big mining town back at that time and farming town but anyway he wanted God to be a certain part of his life when you read your Bible brethren you know and I hope by now you know that you know that God is to be your life He's not to be over here a part of this or a part of that. He is involved in everything you think and say and do all day long. If you walk with God, you don't need to be nutty or to think weird thoughts. You could just realize that God is real. He's the one that is really giving you the breath of air you breathe, the food you eat. He's giving you the very mind with which you think. He's going to bless you, protect you, deliver you, unless it's his time for you to die. And it may be his time for some of you to die. It may be his time for me to die in the next year or two. I'm getting older. Am I afraid of that? No, I'm not afraid. It might be easier than going through the terrible trials that are ahead just to lie down and say, oh, you, you rest of you, you younger guys, you have at it. I'm checking out. <laughs> if you know God, you don't have to fear death. There's nothing to be afraid of. But you have to understand that God is to be your life. He's not to be a sliver over here, over there. You're to walk with God in the way you live your life, in your family, with your children, in the way you train your children, the way you do your business, the way you take care of your body, the way you have recreation, the kind of neighbor you are. Every aspect of your life is to be given to God because you learn to walk with God in a total, complete way. And that's the thing you've got to learn to do, every one of us, and I hope all of us will learn to do that. So that is what is one of the concepts of, of learning to walk with God. Back in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, turn there with me if you would. Here it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the ever-living one Yahweh, the ever-living one, the eternal God. Mr. Armstrong used to follow primarily the Moffat translation, which just renders it one word, the eternal, the eternal or the ever-living one in Hebrew. What does the eternal require of you but to do justly, to love mercy? What does it mean, do justly? That you're fair, you're above board. You don't hide things. You don't mess around and cheat and lie and steal to get your way. You live justly and you love mercy. You're willing to forgive. That doesn't mean you're soft-headed. God tells us that people cause division and repeatedly do so. And obviously the Bible shows you have to put them out of the church. Do we hate them? No. The only way to love your child is to spank them once in a while. God rebukes and chases every son he loves. That's what God himself does. 
God wants us to get a good shaking up once in a while. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's not something bad, but it's got to be fair and for the right reason. Do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Not walk in arrogance that we're better than others. Because, brethren, you know that there are many people out in the world who are part of uh, maybe uh, Samaritan's Purse or the Salvation Army or even Catholic people like Mother Teresa. They don't know the truth we know. It's not their fault. God has not called them. But they are trying to help and to give and to serve sometimes for thousands of hours, years or decades of their life because they're trying to help. And their own way they are helping. The world is not all evil. What did Adam and Eve take of? A, a jar of pure evil? No, they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil. Remember that. It's not all evil, but the evil tends to predominate after a while and take over since this is Satan's world. So some of these people do a lot of good. And some of them are perhaps better than you and me. They have more capacity. They're smarter. They're harder working. And when they get their chance and their mind is open, they be better Christians than we are. So it's good for us always to understand that. God has not called them, but you must add that one word, yet. <laughs> he hasn't called them yet. When he calls them, some of them may be better. So we want to have the humility to walk humbly with God to be grateful that somehow, why am I here? I don't fully understand it. Most of you don't fully understand why you're here. We can prove it in the Bible. We can see we're doing what the Bible says, and we can see how God has blessed this work in many ways through Mr. Armstrong and since. But was I better than all the other guys in my gang or better than the other kids in Joplin High School? We just had three years and not four-year high, but we had pretty good size school for that at that time 1250 students why was i called i don't know maybe he saw a certain intensity people have sometimes been put off with my intensity god said well i can grab this guy and teach him lessons and use that intensity to teach the truth maybe that's one reason i don't know i certainly wasn't better and i did plenty of bad in high school and I'm sorry when God called me and I was baptized by Mr. Armstrong in the lower gardens on December 19th, 1949. I meant it. I really meant it. And this wave of, of repentance came over me and I knew I've got to be forgiven. When I used to counsel kids for baptism, they'd say, I'd say, well, why do you want to be baptized? Well, I want to be baptized to get the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good. Or I want to be in God's kingdom. Well, that's good. Or I want to overcome my sins. That's good. Or I want to. But most of them leave out the one thing. I am a sinner and I have got to have my sins forgiven or I'm not going to ever be in God's kingdom. That's the big reason to recognize you really are a sinner. You need forgiveness. And to come to the place you really repent with all your heart and mind and being because you know that Jesus Christ's blood paid for your sins and you need to be forgiven. The other reasons are good reasons too. Certainly you want God's spirit. Certainly you want to be in God's kingdom. Certainly you want to honor your parents. Some kids are baptized because something that maybe one of their parents died or something happened and they decide to honor their parents and just coming into God's church. Well, that's fine. But that's not the big reason. You've got to repent. 
and then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you think of all those things, and I hope all of you will. So we're to love mercy and to walk humbly, recognizing that we are weak. We need to be forgiven, to walk humbly with God, and you need to repent every day of your life. Have you repented yet this morning? I hope you have. I don't do it perfectly. I've never done anything perfectly. But as part of my prayer, Mr. Armstrong used to teach us that he has spent about one-third of his prayer often in just praising God at the beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my loved ones. Thank you for the beautiful home, the beautiful neighborhood, the beautiful, the wonderful food and the friendship, the beautiful world we're living in. Thank you, thank you for everything good that you could think of. It comes from him. You praise his name. Honor him. But somewhere in the middle of that prayer, you had better ask God to forgive you, help you, have mercy upon you, clean you up, scrub you out. Scrub you out with strong, wise soap so you could be in God's kingdom. So I hope all of us can have that attitude and repent every day and walk humbly with God. Then back in John, in your New Testament, John chapter 14, I'm going to turn there at this point. John 14, and uh, let's begin reading here in verse 30. John 14 and verse 30. Jesus said, he was getting near the end of his life here, this last talk before he was taken and crucified. He says, I know, will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Brethren, Christ knew there was a spirit world. And you've got to know that and resist that wrong influence. You've got to fight it. If something awful comes on you, a deep spirit of discouragement, a deep spirit of bitterness, you're just mad, mad, and you don't know why. Have you read some book that stirred you up? Have you seen some movie or TV show that stirred you up that way? Sometimes not. It's just something that comes out of nowhere. It comes from Satan the devil. He is after you. And once you recognize that, you can start to pray on your knees real quick and ask God to catch, cast it away. He says, I will no longer talk with you for the ruler of this world. Satan the devil is the God of this age. And he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandments, so I do arise. Let us go from here. I am the vine, chapter 15, verse 1. You are my, my, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Every time that you're humbled, every time that you're rebuked or chastened or God lets you get sick or God lets something go wrong, does that mean God hates you or you failed? No, you may think in your mind, well, I've already been praying. I've been serving others. I've tried to give generously in tithes and offerings. I've tried to help the work. I've done these things. Why is God doing this? Well, this is the reason, perhaps. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, even though you do bear fruit, he prunes. He may chop the un worthy branches off the rough spots that you still have that it may bear more fruit so God may help you bear more fruit by loving in a loving way helping some of these trials come upon you even though you have borne some fruit 
You're already clean because of the words which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. What does that mean? Walk with God. Christ is God. I and my Father are one, he said. Two personalities, but totally filled with and led by that same Spirit. So Christ is God. And you abide in Christ, you abide in God. And God lives in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the only way you're going to help others. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, him bears much fruit. If Christ is in you, if Christ is using you, guiding you, living your life within you, living his life within you, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, the words of this book. And I want to add, some of our men have said, pray. Yes, do pray. But brethren, if you don't study this book regularly, your prayers are going to be very thin. You've got to read and read and reread and meditate upon and study this book. Then you'll know how to pray. You'll know what to pray for. And by reading the book, you will grow in faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And I would encourage you young people, some of you get all your Bible studies on a computer. Well, that's not a sin at all. But I'm just saying I would much prefer that you get a real Bible in print so you can think about it, look at it, hold it, and they could just, it won't just flop off of something you touch the wrong button or something, you know. It's kind of like God's not there. You accidentally touch the edge of the little computer. It flips off. Is God's word flipping off? No, my Bible doesn't do that. I think it gives you a feeling of solidity, solidity, strength. If you have a real Bible in your hand and study that Bible, study that book, mark it, think about it, make it a familiar friend, a familiar friend where you know this book because you have held it in your hand, you studied it, You've studied it and read it carefully and thoughtfully. You've meditated about it purposely, thought about the meaning of each passage as you go over it and over it where you really know this book. That's what God wants all of you to do, not just the ministers. So he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. Ask whatever you desire because if Christ's words abide in you you will be asking the right thing and it shall be done for you by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit for so you will be my disciples God wants us to bear much fruit brethren he wants this little group right here to begin to have an impact around this whole world and we are trying we're trying very hard. Some of our younger men have helped us really grow in the impact of the Internet, Facebook, and, and these other uh, Internet uh, facets in the last few years. And a lot of things are just coming together right now that are going to be bearing a whole lot of fruit within the next year. And I'm very grateful for what they're doing. Very grateful. So we've got to do that. And we're getting on more TV stations as best we can if we have the money and good stations open up. I thank God every day for CBS Reality, which is a wonderful big station over in Britain. And through that station, if we could keep on it, and I ask your prayers for it, if we could keep on that station for months and months, 
I think it will be the biggest door to reach the mother country for many of us, the British Isles, that we have ever had. I remember sitting back in 1954 out on Westminster Bridge over the Thames River in London, and Dick Armstrong and I were there alone at that point on our trip before the Armstrongs arrived, and he was able to hear his voice, Dad's voice, back at Pasadena. The, the, the Radio Luxembourg wasn't able to be heard in the other part of London or in many of the southern cities in Britain because the, the, the strength of the station didn't do that. So we had to get out over the water, away from the big buildings, away from the interference, and we would hear, and greetings, friends, around the world. And this was Dick's dad talking, and my second father, in a sense. He became like a father figure to me, and I loved him, and I still love him. He was human. He makes mistakes, but he was like a father. It was really good to hear that voice. And then you'd hear him saying, and God bless you all, and the music would come on. Later they cut out the music part and other stuff, but that would end. And then all of a sudden, bong, bong, bong. The big Ben was right up above us over Westminster Bridge. The program came on every Thursday night from 11.30 till midnight. And God used him and many hundreds of people came. But brethren, that nation today has over 60 million people and most of them never heard the word Herbert Armstrong or Ambassador College or Plain Truth or Tomorrow's World magazine. We're not reaching them. But through this program and through the Internet and other means, we're going to start to reach them. And God wants us to. And I pray we can reach them with great power and have an impact. So may God help us to do our part and be able to produce much fruit. Why? Because Christ will be living within us and he will give us the wisdom he will give us the zeal, the dedication, the faith, and the courage. And he will give us the blessings to make it possible because he is God and nothing can stay his hand. You've heard me mention many times, but it certainly comes into this sermon, part of walking with God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, my favorite verse, where Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I not the word, the word ego is literally used there in the Greek, the ego, the selfish human self, not the ego, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not in, the mistranslation, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. That's the key. That's the key to Christianity. People that just believe there is a Christ the devils believe and tremble, the book of James tells us. Lots of people heard about the name Christ. They have a certain limited faith. They don't understand who the true Christ was. They don't know his true message. But if Christ, you know Christ, you walk with him, talk with him, commune with him, and he lives his life in you through the Holy Spirit, you will have a degree of faith and courage, and God will bless you and use you, and you can bring forth much fruit. So I pray all of us can really have that approach to Christianity and by walking with God where we will not just walk with God on our own, but Christ will live within us. And certainly we will walk with God in that way, in a profound way. Christ will be keeping all of his commandments in you. Back in John 15, verse 10, he said, I've kept my father's commandments. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He will live the same life in you he lived 1,900 years ago. If Christ is living in you, you will really keep the Sabbath. You won't partly keep it and then spend time watching a lot of worldly stuff on TV or reading the funny papers or doing other things that are not helping you to be close to God at all. You will be worshiping God and using that time to worship God. You will be keeping the Sabbath. You will be keeping the holy days. You will really trust God for healing. Yahweh Rafika, the healing God. And again, you will have increased faith. And through that faith, as we grow in faith as a church and beseech God to increase our faith, we will begin to see more divine healings than we've ever had before. Some of us are getting older. I don't know the age of this lady that we announced, but I think she was older, as I remember, and uh, not as old as me. But when people do get up in their 60s or 70s or 80s, we're not to give up and think, well, God doesn't heal anymore. How old was the Apostle Paul when he died? Probably about 15 years younger than me. I mean that. I've studied a lot about Paul's life. I think he was only about 65 to 68 years old and he died. Many others died. Most people do die somewhere between 65 and 85. So don't think God doesn't heal if he doesn't let everyone live to be 80 or 90 or 110. A few people do make it to 110, but not very many. So we have to understand that. God is the healer, and we've got to understand that and draw closer to God in that way. Have Christ living in us. The national public radio this morning has brought, brought out what I mentioned earlier, so I don't need to again, but about this Ebola virus and how the whole body just comes apart. It's a horrible thing. It's scary, yes, but we must learn to really trust God. That will be our only refuge when the big viruses, when the big plagues come along. You will need to know God. You will need to walk with God maybe more than you ever have when that time comes. And it's not going to be that many more years from now. I don't want to set dates. We've always been wrong when we set an exact date. But I certainly think it's going to be when Christ comes in 20 years or less and the tribulation might begin in 12 to 15 years or less. I hope less. Us old guys want it less, of course. <laughs> but some of you young people want another 15 or 25 years so you could get married and so on. God knows what's best. Is God going to let every one of us live to be 90 or 100? No. He'll let some die. And we will have peace. And we won't go through the suffering and the anguish of the great tribulation. So don't feel too sorry for older people if they die. We wanna, we're going to miss them. But we don't give up on God. We never turn aside if we walk with God. Do you have financial problems? You can't pay your bills. Things are going wrong in this terrible tribulation we just had, this terrible recession, the worst since the Great Depression. Well, God has words on that, as you know. And again, a lot of people in God's church don't believe it. They water it down. They try to explain it away. But back in Malachi... Malachi, the third chapter, which is the word of Almighty God. He says in verse 8, Malachi chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? God answers in tithes and offerings. Not just tithes, but tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And he goes on. God wants us to give our tithes and offerings, all of us, and not try to water it down or explain it away. 
Most of you did not read this old article. You may not have been in the worldwide church, but Mr. Armstrong had it repented a couple times, the man who could not afford to tithe. And I met this man and worked on his mint farm at one point. And all his neighbors had their part of their crops wash away in this flood that came down the river. And somehow the flood circled around his property. And his, his men and his crops were worth more because there was a shortage of that because the others had theirs wiped out. Is that a crazy story Mr. Armstrong made up? No. I met that man and that happened. I met many of the older brethren up in Oregon, the first and paid employee of Ambassador College or of the of the world of the of the what was the Radio Church of God, and and I met Mr. and Mrs. Well, I better not go through the stories, but I knew a lot of those early people and talked to them, and they acknowledged that Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong had to live hard. They had a terrible time for a while. They had to put their trust in God because they obeyed God anyway. And you will obey God anyway. And you will see that you are better off in the end by tithing. Because God Almighty is behind it. You will walk with God and then God will walk with you. And God thinks so you in the end are much better off than if you try to play games with God and water down His law in any of these aspects of life. Because God becomes very, very real to you. And I hope that you will always have that attitude. Back in Daniel, the third chapter, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel, the third chapter here. And here it talks about these young men that were over there serving God, the young Jews, and these other Chaldeans were upset at them and accused them. And they said in verse 12, they were not willing to bow down to this big idol that the king had put up. And they said, there are certain Jews whom you said over the fairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. This great monarch, powerful, over the most powerful kingdom on earth at that time by far, his visage changed. He turned into rage and fury, and he commanded they be brought before him, and he threatened them with being burned alive. And he says in verse 19 or verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Here's this powerful monarch shouting at them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We've already made up our minds. To that extent in their life, they had walked with God. They knew God was there. If you read this account, they weren't wandering and scared. God was real to them. Therefore, they had faith and they were willing to give their lives. We don't have any need to, you know, make some excuse or something. If that is the case, if we're going to be burned in a fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But, this is a remarkable part. But, he said, they said, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was full of rage at that point and commanded they heat the furnace seven times hotter. Apparently it was a kind of a pit. And the men got too close to the edge of the pit who were trying to throw them in and died. And only these men who trusted God were spared. And then as they looked, they were there and didn't know what happened. And he said, look, in verse 35, 
the king said, verse 25, I see four men loose walking in the midst of fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth, the form of the fourth is like a son of God. Who was with them? It was the son of God. Christ was literally with them in that pit, that great being who is from eternity, who is God, the Lagos, the spokesman. He's the one who said, let there be light. He's the one who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the one who spoke to Moses. He's the one who gave the Ten Commandments. I am the eternal God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Obey me. Serve me. He told them what to do. He was real. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. That God was Christ. Christ was with them because they had been with Christ. They had walked with the God of the Old Testament. They had walked with God, talked with God, knew God. Obviously, they had. They didn't have any fear. God was very real to them. And God was dealing with humanity and the person of the one who later emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth. So let's understand that, brethren. And I hope that we all will understand it. Back in the New Testament again, turn to Romans 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8 at this point. In Romans 8 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings, the trials and tests we go through of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All around Los Angeles, out toward the Lake Arrowhead in the mountains area there, the trees are dying because the smog is killing them. They had old articles on that. All over the earth, fish are dying, plants are dying, animals are dying, man is polluting the earth. Things are coming apart because they're disobeying the laws of nature, the laws of creator. They don't understand there is a God. They're trying to get more money. If they have to destroy everything around us to get that money, they will. The love of money is not the only, the love of money, not money, but the love of money, the lust after money, is a root, not the only one, a root of all evils. And we need to understand that. The creation is crying out for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to this futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And we're waiting for the liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So we're the first fruits of the Spirit waiting for God. And then he says near the end here, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good. But the world just quotes that all the time. All things work together for good. Like that means everybody all the time. No, it does not. God allows horrible things to happen for a while. All things work together for good to those who love God. To those who walk with God, talk with God, who are called according to his purpose. So if you give your life to God, he will bless you and he will cause. Some things bad will happen, but he will cause it to work for good in the end because he is there and he is God. And nothing can stay his hand for whom he knew He predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, those he justified, 
and whom he justified, those he glorified. In his plan, God has already glorified us. He's already planned that we would be full members of the family of God. What then? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we have to really fully understand that and recognize the power of God. If we walk with God, nothing could stay his hand. Who could be against us? They don't have a chance because we are God's real servants because we have been willing to serve God, obey God, and have an ongoing intimate relationship to God because we study this book every day. We feed on Christ. We meditate on this book. We fast. We use the tool of fasting. And we, in our life, we do what God says. Not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law will be justified. We walk with God. And if we walk with God in those ways, he will bless us now and forever. So we've got to get that concept of praying to God all day long, studying this book regularly, feeding on Christ, having him live his life within us, and then everything will work out. And I mean everything. I want to mention again that back in 1955, I took a baptizing tour. Actually, I took Ted Armstrong out on this tour. He'd never been on one before as a participant because he was in the Navy the four years. I was in Ambassador College, and he and I were good friends back there. And he, being an Armstrong, talked me into going to the only movie I'd ever been on in a baptizing tour because he was singing a lot. He was a good singer, and he wanted to see the student prince. And in the student prince, as I've said, the young prince was up in, in uh, down south in uh, as part of Germany, and where I can't remember it right now, where the, they have the, the more better weather and bare stubens and so on. He came back home to this northern area where his father, the king, had died. And in that great German cathedral, he put, and there they put Mario Lanz's voice on, not Mario Hernandez, <laughs> but Mario Lanza's voice on to sing the song, I'll Walk With God. That became even more to me a theme of my life. And I think it's helped me so much. Though I'm very, very imperfect and make hundreds of mistakes, I've tried to follow that for the past 65 years. As I say, it has been a theme of my life that I've thought over and over again. And maybe that's one reason we've been able to carry on this work because Mr. Ames and Mr. Weston and many others, I'm sure, have learned to walk with God. And I hope all of you can walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, really give your life to God, put your full trust in God. And I hope all of you will do that with all of your heart, not halfway. God doesn't want halfway Christians, but walk with God with all your heart. And he will then bless you, guide you, deliver you from trials and tests from now on and bring you into his everlasting kingdom.